You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rusk. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rusk Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rusk AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Kate Campbell, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Wonderful to be back, Owen. Very, very wonderful because we have a special guest in the studio, in the flesh, which is always lovely. Mike Camp, how are you going? Very good. Very good. Thanks for asking me along. Yeah, it's... um. We're just talking off air about a few different things, but for me at least, and I'd say maybe I speak on behalf of both of us, we're very, very humbled to have you with us in the studio today because you bring so much wisdom and vesting about behavior, about knowing yourself and just how that interacts with money in general. And you're also a student of history, which unfortunately is rarer than we would like. So you can recall things from... 100 years ago, 200 years ago, maybe even longer. 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 I'm I'm (laughs) sure we will uh, get a taste of that. But let's set the scene. You've written a new book, your third, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Um, But we want to dive into kind of every facet of not just the book, but also your career in, you've had two distinct careers, if you will. Can you just go back in time, Mike, and tell us, where did your interaction with money come from or investing? Well, I think you're born with, essentially born with the desire. Um, so there's that, that part of things. But at age four, when I was four, uh, my parents split up and my father left the house and left my mother with four children uh, in a very nice suburb, in a very nice home, but my, we didn't have any money. 
Hmm. So it was a rather unusual situation, I guess. Um, my mother got a job when I was five and effectively I was on my own after that. She used to come home from work every day. She had a full-time job. But uh, I had to become very independent. Uh, for example, I remember at age eight, I uh, wanted a new bicycle. She couldn't afford one. I entered a colouring competition and hmm. I won a new Malvern Star. Uh, age 11, I remember I started a job because I wanted some money and my mother couldn't give me pocket money, so I got a job as a paper boy um, six days a week, starting at 6 a.m., so I used to deliver papers for, before I went to school. And that's probably age 11 when I first realised that I had an interest in money because I saved a lot of money from my paper round and I bought a corporate debenture. And what... I mean, when you look back on it, I thought it was normal, but when you look back on it, what 11-year-old buys a corporate debenture? Corporate debenture is essentially a when a company needs money and it borrows it. So it pays you a high rate of interest. It's, it's like a, a mini-term deposit, but directly lending money to the company. Of course, I, at age 11, I didn't realise what I should have done as a credit analysis on the, on the company. <laughs> I didn't, probably didn't know much of the difference between a bank and a company, but... Um, so that was age 11, but I didn't really get serious about investing in stocks until I was in my 20s because you need money. And of course, as a teenager and so forth, um, so I got very serious at age 11, but I always knew I had an interest in finance. Um, apparently at age six, I told my mother I wanted to become a bank manager when I was older. <laughs> very I mean, specific. I mean, what, what six-year-old wants to be a bank manager? You know, normally it's, you know, drive a fire engine or fly a plane or something. So <laughs> mm. it, it was sort of there. Uh, I had a fascination with mathematics. I loved mathematics. So it was just a natural, natural fit. Can I ask a follow-up here? When I heard this story first time around, I was really intrigued by this because knowing what you went on to do after this, which we'll get to in a minute. We talk about on the show limiting money beliefs and people's relationship with money and how that can actually have adverse consequences from the, the, like being a child and seeing parents with money going through things like breakdowns in relationships, not having money, having too much. These all have consequences, at least it seems. Mm -hmm. Did did you find like did you did you find maybe later in your life which we can get to in a minute that that like your father leaving have consequences on your relationship with money? Absolutely. Did that lead you to overcompensate in any way? Maybe I I, I saw my mother necessarily eke every cent of value out of a dollar. Mm. Every cent of value was important, and I guess. Even to this day, even though I I now I don't need to do it, unless something has value, I I I lose interest. You know, I, I don't want to overpay for things, mm. and and you can't. That never leaves you, never leaves you. For example, when I travel on a plane, I fly economy domestically because I can't see the point of travelling business. The seats mm. a couple of inches wider, and the flight's only for an hour and a half. What's the point? Uh, but I would consider it now at my age <laughs> for international flights. Yep. So uh, that's just an example. Mm. Um, I hate throwing money away mm. is what I'm trying to say. Mm. Fair enough. 
And did this independence as a child, was that what you think led you to investing in shares early on? Because still a lot of us don't start in our 20s. Yeah, I had an interest in the share market and I was working at Bankers Trust at the time. So I, I, you know, it was interesting how I chose corporate finance. I had been a general dentist for a short period of time and I knew I didn't like it. So I did an MBA at Monash and I wasn't really sure what corporate finance was. And I went (laughs) to the class and at the end of the class, after a few, well, under a few classes, I walked up to the lecturer and I said, is there a job that does what you're teaching us? And he said, sure, go and work for a broker or an investment house in, in the corporate finance department. He said, it's exactly what I'm teaching you. So then I knew what I wanted to do. Mm. And I, I got a job at Bankers Trust and I also had a, ended up with a job at Potter Warburg in their corporate finance department. And I, was, I used to pinch myself each day saying, really, is this work? <laughs> no, I just loved it. Yeah. What didn't, what didn't you like about being a dentist? That's a really hard question. Um, as a general dentist, I used to go to lectures from specialists, specialist dentists. And I used to sit there and I used to say, why does this person know more about dentistry than me? So I, I didn't like the generality of it. I didn't feel that it was exploring the intellectual side of of what one can pursue. Mm. Whereas finance offered much more intellectual interaction. It wasn't to me about making money. It was about the intellectual side of things that I I loved about finance. Mm. Because there's so many facets to it Mm. that people don't think about. A lot of people enter finance because they think, I just want to make a lot of money. No, it's about psychology. It's about history. It's about accounting. It's about every facet of life that you can think about to become a good investor. Mm. So many other avenues to explore. Mm. So you chose shares predominantly, it seems, yeah. over other types of finance, like a corporate finance, I don't know, worker can move into different parts of corporate finance. They can move yeah. into debt. They can move yeah. into private markets. Yeah. Why did you end up in shares? Yeah, my first, I, when I went looking for a job, Macquarie Bank offered me a job. I sort of got excited about that. And I said, what department will I start off in? They said, the property department. I went, ugh, no. <laughs> um, what is it about shares? Um, if, I, if you look at the different asset classes, what's important me, to me is to make income or have a, an asset that delivers income, I should say, and make capital gain as well. So I like asset classes that deliver both. You look at something like gold, it it doesn't deliver income. Mm. I've never seen a chunk of gold deliver any income. Um, it, its price swings around a lot. You look at bonds, sure, they deliver an income, but the capital gain is sort of missing unless it's in a falling interest rate environment. Mm. So you're taking a punt on where interest rates are heading. Uh, so bonds and gold, no, no. So you sort of got property and shares. Property, no. Um, For me, it's an absolute hassle owning property. I know you can go through a REIT or whatever, but direct property, no, because it's difficult to find one. You have to go on the search. Then you have to pay massive amounts of stamp duty, what, 5.5% in Victoria. We're we're taxed the hilt in Victoria for obvious reasons. We're broke. Um, (laughs) You get taxed while you own it, and land tax has just gone up in Australia. Uh, there's the hassles. 
of course, you can get a, a prep property manager, but that costs. And then when you sell it, you've got to pay uh, a, a fee to the real estate agent, assuming you sell it. I'm, I'm trying to sell three properties I've got at the moment, and God help me, I'm in the three offices. The office market has died uh, in Australia, mm. probably across the world. So I, I just find property a hassle. Um, I do own some REITs. They're, they're much more kind to me. Uh, so shares, it's it's someone else's managing. You know, you can make the buy and sell decision and activate that buy and sell decision sitting at your desk at home. It's just so convenient. The money gets paid into your bank account. You can be anywhere in the world and just pull the cash out of your bank account. Right? So shares interest me. They're multifaceted. I love the psychology behind the share market, uh, how it behaves, understanding how it behaves. Mm. So it's been an easy one for me. Mm. Mm. And speaking of behaviour, you've spent the last couple of years working on your latest book, The Ulysses Contract, and I think the biggest question people probably have when they see the front cover of the book is, what is the Ulysses contract? Why did you choose that title and what's the story there? So I'd love if you could explain a bit of the yeah, background. Yeah, I came across the term a few years ago and I thought, what a great you know, name for behaviour in the share market because, I mean, it, it, it's borrowed from Homer's ancient poem and one of the central char characters is a guy called Odysseus um, or in Latin, Ulysses, he's more commonly known as Ulysses, he's the king of Ithaca and he's sailing home uh, with his crew uh, after the Trojan Wars. And he's sailing past an island that uh, uh, sirens inhabit, which are beautiful, sweet singing sirens that lure sea uh, seafarers onto the rocks to their ultimate death. And to sail safely past this island, he told his crew to put wax in their ears but he wanted to hear this song, so he asked them to rope him to the mast, minus the wax. So what Ulysses was doing was putting in place a plan before he got exposed to temptation to stop himself from doing anything stupid. And I thought, what an appropriate term for investing, because investing also is a journey. You're going to be exposed to a lot of sirens, Mm. Um, and they will take you away from the path of good investing behaviour and onto the rocks of financial destruction. So that it, that's what that's why I called it that. It, it's basically a book about what to avoid um, when you start your investing journey or on your way through your investing journey. Um, all the blind alleys you can go down and the mistakes you can make and why you should avoid them because some of them aren't very obvious, and many of them are very alluring, mm. Mm. particularly when money's involved. Mm. What do you think are some of the ones, that those sirens that don't seem obvious from the outset? Uh, well, I think, I think Ben Graham said it uh, in 1949 in his first edition of The Intelligent Investor. He said, uh, the first one is yourself. Um, the investor's chief, and Graham said the investor's chief problem and perhaps his worst enemy uh, is himself. Uh, we are extremely irrational. We have a lot of human frailties. And the problem is we always think we're right. 
So we can do stupid things and think stupid things uh, and believe that we're right. So I guess the first one is ourselves. And that's why I would encourage people to read uh, books on uh, behavioral books uh, about what we tend as humans to do things, how we do things wrong, you know, things like bias and um, believing things that aren't so, uh, taking shortcuts, um, greed, uh, emotion. Uh, because when we're emotional, uh, fear and greed, we can't think straight, uh, which is really, really bad for an investor. I think the irrational behavior that humans carry on with all the time uh, it works against good investing. Um, the book is available at Big W. It's available on Booktopia. Pretty much everywhere. Pretty much everywhere. The Ulysses contract, you can pick it up. Um, yep. Sold out pretty quick at the first run. The first run, um, Which is it was basically impressive. the first day. Uh, the first day it came out and uh, it looks like we're going to go on to the third print run, yeah. Who, when you had this book in mind, so... Just quickly, the idea of like avoiding temptation and having a plan and these types of things. Who did you have in mind would pick up this book and read it? I think the earlier the better. I mean, I would I would love I would love a twenty or thirty year old to read it. Mm. Um, unfortunately, uh, a lot of twenty and thirty year olds have fairly fixed views about investing, and they don't necessarily like listening to these sorts of things. Often, I often find young people want to make money quickly, and that's not the message of the book. Um, they want to be told what works. They don't want to be told what doesn't work. Um, mm. but, but that's not the message. The message that drove my book is, is I guess, something that a German writer, philosopher, satirist called... Um, uh, Ludwig Born said 200 years ago, he said, losing an illusion makes you wiser than finding a truth. And I believe that if you get the illusions out of investing, all the things that don't work, and then focus on the things that do work, uh, you've got a much better chance of success. Who else, though? Uh, anyone of any age, really, anyone yeah. who's still investing, anyone who's still got a pulse, um, <laughs> you know, people who are 60, 70 may still have 20 or 30 years of investing left. So I don't think there's any specific age. Mm. No, it's great. Um, I, I'm 32. Kate, I won't say her name, but Kate's a bit younger than me. Yeah. Um, and some of the best piece of advice, I look back on it now with hindsight, I think I should have paid so much more attention were the ideas around avoiding mistakes rather than achieving success, like the old Charlie Munger adage of, like, avoid stupidity, don't seek brilliance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, I digress. What are some of the sirens? Can you give us an example or examples that people should be aware of? And I think it illustrates the concept beautifully. I think a pervasive one is the crowd. We are social animals. Uh, we don't think it. We sort of tend to separate ourselves from the animal kingdom, but you should not. I'm why when someone cries fire, do you start running for the exit before checking whether, in fact, there is a fire? Uh, we take our cue from the behaviour of the crowd. And I think if the crowd is doing something, if the crowd is piling into a stock, we see safety. If the crowd is selling a stock or selling the market, we see safety. 
even though it's a stupid thing to do. If you want a specific example, I think an absolutely beautiful example um, was the crash in October 1987. It was a Tuesday in Melbourne. Uh, I remember waking up that morning and I uh, listening to the news and Wall Street had just closed down 23%. Now, is there any reason for Australia to have fallen by 25% that day, which it did? No one was asking any questions. They were just behaving as Wall Street did. We were running for the exits because someone called fire. Uh, I think a really interesting thing is they had six investigations into the crash, the October crash, in the subsequent four months after it to try and find out the reason why the market fell 23% in, in mm. America. And they didn't come up with a conclusive reason, not, not one conclusive reason. And a, a guy called Bob Schiller, uh, you've probably heard of him, he wrote the book Irrational Exuberance, Bob Schiller sent out a questionnaire to many people, uh, qualified, experienced financial people in America and said, why did you sell? Uh, and the answer came back. They just said, because the market was falling. Mm. Yeah, he said that was the most dominant reason. So we take our cues from the crowd and you've got to think Socratically. Uh, I remember during dot-com, when everyone was buying dot-com stocks and Warren Buffett wasn't for obvious reasons. He didn't believe in buying uh, companies that were just burning cash like that. And he was getting heavily criticised in the press at a personal level. You know, what's wrong, Buffett? Buffett you know, buffeted by the winds of change. We even carried these articles in the Australian Financial Review. He copped an absolute, you know, pounding by the press but who, who had the last laugh, really? He was thinking Socratically. He was saying, this doesn't register with me. Mm. But a lot of people bought got dot-com stocks because they saw them ripping up in value. So the crowd can be a very, very, uh, very, very seductive siren. On the way up and on the way down. And on the way down. Well, I think forecasters, you know, economic forecasters can be a very seductive siren. Um, they're basically fortune tellers. They don't know. They just appear to know. They speak very, very confidently. Uh, the, the, the problem is that we, none of us know what the future holds. We can have a guess, but none of us know. But we hate that. I mean, Alfred Coles, back in 1930, uh, American Alfred Coles, basically said the reason that we list, listen to forecasters, even though we shouldn't, because is because a world in which one no one knows can be frightening. Humans hate a void, and the future is a void. So what they are prepared to do is to listen to forecasters, economic forecasters, who are telling them how things are going to turn out. But the thing that worries me about forecasters is that they deliver that forecast as a narrative. In other words, they, they, and it starts to sound like fact. The past is a narrative because it happened. It's fact. The past can be delivered as a story. And when they start delivering the future in the same sort of expressive way, th the difference between past, which is fact, and future, which is not fact, 
starts to become blurred and people start to believe them. Uh, I think a really interesting thing that denies this, a guy called Philip Tetlock, uh, he's a professor at Philadelphia University in the US. He's an expert on experts. He does research into these expert predictions. And probably one of his most interesting study, he looked at the forecasts of, I think it was about 250, 260 economic and political forecasters. But he did something we don't do. He followed the forecast three times to see if they came true. And altogether, they produced 27,500 forecasts. And in Tetlock's words, the outcome of their forecast could have been achieved by a chimpanzee throwing darts at a dartboard. But the really interesting thing I found was that the subgroup of forecasters that performed the worst were the most confident ones. And as I like to say, where do we find confident forecasters? On the news, mm -hmm. in the newspapers. They get presented by the bank or the mm -hmm. financial institution as their face because people love confidence and it's dangerous to listen to forecasters. Well, it's certainly dangerous to act on what they're saying. You don't need to. So that's another one. This whole, this whole idea of um, top-down investing, where you, you think about the economy and what that's going to do, then you think about the business sector that's going to perform the best within your economic forecast, and then the businesses that are best. I just laugh. The whole thing is on the, on, the, on the premise that your first basis for choosing was correct, <laughs> and it's not. So it's faulted from the beginning. Um, but I, I think from memory, I've got about 11 or 12 uh, sirens that I talk about. So there, there's a few. Maybe we'll jump to a, a different interaction that you had then. So a lot of people that listen to this program uh, will have read the Barefoot Investor book, Scott Pape, um, or been a member of Barefoot Blueprint, um, which you worked on for a very long time. Uh, I'm curious, or we're curious, how did you first come across Scott and become involved in the Barefoot community? Yeah, it all started with an email from him that landed in my inbox. Uh, I had just written a book, my first book, called Creating Real Wealth. It was published in uh, 2010. So I got to know uh, Janine Murdoch through my first book. And apparently, unbeknownst to me, Scott Pape also know, knew Janine and asked her if she knew someone who could work with him as, uh, as an investment analyst. And Janine threw my name up amongst others hmm. and I got a my first contact with Scott is I got a email uh, in my inbox and it said hi I'm Scott Pape you may not know who I am they call me the bear and foot investor I'd like to have a coffee with you so I thought yeah why not you know I always like meeting people and talking about finance so that's how it started and I went and worked with him for nine years and he's a Great bloke, personal friend. I you can't say enough nice things about Scott. What was the highlight for you during that experience? Because you got to be involved in the lives of a lot of Australians in a way. 
Yeah, yeah, it was great interacting with people. You really developed an understanding of how people think about investing because I'd been working in a vacuum mm. in my own bubble, but really interacting with people and getting feedback from people, it really made me better understand what goes on in the head of people's invest investing minds. But the highlight was definitely Scott and I, five times we travelled to Omaha, uh, Nebraska for the Berkshire Hathaway AGM and on three of those occasions, uh, I got involved with a lead-up event to that with Bob Miles. He's an author who's written about Buffett. He runs a course over there and uh, also a conference, an uh, uh, investing conference where people come from, because they've come from all around the world to go to the Berkshire Hathaway AGM, they normally have about 40,000 people lobbying on on Omaha that weekend. And a lot of these people from all around the world, investment managers, fund managers, and they hold a conference, three-day conference. So going to that was a highlight. Mm. I got to speak at one of them. Bob Miles asked me to speak. So that, that was great. Mm. It was really, some of the people I met, you know, was, was, was really, really good. Enjoyed it. I want to actually follow up and lace these two previous questions together, which is that, um, we we spend a lot of time here talking about financial independence and what that means, but a lot of the times we spend it on the the build up to financial independence, to reaching a point in your life where you yeah. where you get to that control, basically, of your time and your effort, whatever. Um, and so when Scott sent you that email, now we don't know circumstances and all that sort of stuff aside. But I would assume, just from what I know, that you were in a position where you didn't have to take that yeah, no, that job. No. And so I guess someone who was perhaps financially independent at that time, yep. why did you decide to do that? Like, What purpose did you have in that? Okay. It's, it's a great question. Really, oh, and I'm in a very, very fortunate stage of my life, have been for a long time, where I can say no. I don't have to do anything, really, to be quite honest. So it's all about choice. Mm. And I interacted with Scott because I wanted to. You know, it was <sighs> – payment was not an issue. Mm. You know, just it was never about money. It was always about spending my time each day doing things I genuinely wanted to do. Mm. And there was not – you know, one there wasn't even one percent of the time I didn't enjoy working with him, mm. and I could have walked out any time, and he knew that. But he was—I was there because I wanted to be, and, and I'm here today because I, I was going to say the same thing today. Same thing, yeah. So what what drove you to come here today and talk? Other than so you've got the book, which no doubt many of our listeners are going to grab from Big W, maybe even hand to their friends and family. But what drives you today? Very very simple. Um, the alternative to getting involved in something you're passionate about is to do nothing. Because I certainly, long time since I've had to work for money. So you fill your day doing things you want to do. Mm. And there is nothing I would rather do than write a book about finance, interact with people about finance, help people with finance, or be talking to you. There's nothing I'd rather be doing, full stop. Mm. So that's simple. I'd be interested to know, because we don't often speak to people who are already financially independent on the show, has it changed your life in any other ways? 
I, I had a career. I was a career type person. And when I was in my 30s and 40s, my career, you just naturally accept that you do a career. You, I wasn't really in the position I am now. But my brother died at the age of 48. I was 43 at the time. And it changed my whole perspective on life because I decided that every day after the age of 48, I wanted to live the sort of life I live now. So my perspective changed from when I was working 12-hour days to I started to read a lot of philosophy. And one uh, philosopher that really changed my thinking was a philosopher called Epicurus. And he, he believed that there were three things that you needed to do with a life that were important. Um, I've, I've called them in my book, friends, family, and freedom. Because I think if you can get yourself in a position where you spend time with friends, you can't be unhappy when you're with friends. In fact, Epicurus built a big house out of Athens. He was an Athenian. And he invited all his friends to come and live with him because he didn't see them as freeloaders. I, I have a, a big holiday house. On, there's an open door philosophy with all my friends. Um, so friends, family, spend time with your family, I, I embrace your family, help your family. Say, I, I can help my, I think, I think you should help your family the best way you can. So you look upon what skills you have as a person. They needn't be financial skills. They might be other skills. My wife is extremely skilled with her family. Um, I can help my kids financially, but that's important to me. It's not giving them stuff or making them weak. Um, and freedom, freedom for choice, freedom to do as you want. It's never, financial independence to me is not about things. It's not about a big yacht or driving a Lamborghini. It, it's about being able to do the important things in life without hindrance and not feeling that you are going to work because you have to pay a mortgage. Financial independence to me is not having a mortgage. Um, it's not craving for something bigger or better than I've already got. I'm very, very happy with what I've got. So that's what financial... And I didn't really reach that realisation, sadly, until my brother died. So I was in my 40s. Yeah. Can I ask, from, in that, that period, we're from 43 to 48, what did you do differently, if anything, to prepare for that moment in your life at 48? So did you, you know, scrimp and save? Did you continue to work the same 10-hour days but just cut excess in your life to save more and be prepared for that time? Or No, for me it was steady as it goes. But I, to see, I had worked out that sort of by that time I'd be fine. So yep. I just cruised the last five years. I didn't cruise. I worked very, very hard. I, I was working 12, 13-hour days. Yeah. Um, in not necessarily enjoying it. So, mm. yeah, everyone's different. Everyone has a different journey. But I think the ultimate destination should be friends, family, and freedom. Mm. Mm. I like that you've worked out what's enough for you because often we don't find that point and it can make us quite miserable along the way. Absolutely, in our society. One of the wealthiest nations in the world and there is so many people screaming out for more. It's, it's bizarre. 
absolutely bizarre. Mm. Uh, it's because uh, I think it was John Stuart Mill who said, we do not desire to be rich, we desire to be richer than the other man. And uh, I think we need to take a much broader look at where we are placed on this planet. You know, there are billions of people here and there's only 26 million people in Australia. We, we judge ourselves by Australian standards that if we haven't got this or that or this or that, we're unhappy. Just travel. Have a look. Have a, and don't go to America and Switzerland and the UK. Go to some other places and see how other people live. We are so blessed in this country. Mm. We really are. But we spend too much time worrying about what we don't have. I, I kicked that habit years ago. I used to suffer from that, but I don't anymore. Mm. Do you do anything in your daily routine, like a ritual or anything, to practice gratitude or um, something along those lines? I stop and I pause and I look. For example, um, if I'm walking along the beach, I make it a really slow walk and I stop. And I'll watch people surfing and I'll watch the waves and I'll listen and I'll feel, I'll look at birds. When my daughter comes with her new baby, I will just go out and stand in awe, awe you know. It's, it's admiring and looking at things rather than rushing past them, mm. I think. Mm. Do you read any books along the lines of, we'll ask you for a list of books in just a moment, but do you read any books along the lines of more like the spiritual side of things or things like, say, like The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle or anything like that? I don't. I'm not a spiritual person. However, I don't deny the the comfort that spirituality and religion brings to people, but I'm not a religious or spiritual person. I guess I'm too much of a scientist for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you do love to read, as anyone that reads the Ulysses contract will discover. And I know we tasked you with bringing along some of your favourite investing books, and I know you've yeah. got a piece of paper with a few lined up for us. So I'd love. Yeah, to I didn't hear. want to miss any. Look, I've, I've got I've got about seven hundred books in my bookshelf, and the bookshelf's not there for show. I've pretty much read every one of them, and <laughs> uh, some of them I've read more than once. I must admit, because you do tend to forget over the years. So it's a really, really difficult question to say which are my favourites. For example, uh, financial history. You have there's so many books you have to read to compile a picture. So there is no one single book. Mm. Um, I think Devil Take the Hindmost by Edward Chancellor is a good one of financial crashes, but there are others as well. But if I was pushed to choose one, that's that's quite good. Edward Chancellor is a good writer and obviously a great historian. He's he's an Englishman. Um, psychology. So that was the history one. I guess psychology um, and behavioural finance. Daniel Kahneman has been great in behavioural finance, and it's it's a bit of a mindful thinking fast and slow, but but it covers a lot of ground. But there are many good books on behavioural finance, but Danny, anything with Danny Kahneman or Amos Tversky, unfortunately Amos has been dead for a long time. He was his partner in crime. Um, the Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel has, has done very, very well and for good reason. It's a good book. It sort of digs into all our human frailties. Mm. And I think if you become conscious of your human frailties, I would hope that you're less likely to 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 uh, 
to fall prey to them. Let, let me say, and I guess we didn't touch on this, the Ulysses contract, we've talked about the sirens. What we haven't, what I haven't mentioned uh, is how to avoid them, mm. which, is, which is what Ulysses did by being tied to the mast. It boils down to our personal psychology. Some people just aren't made out, sorry, aren't cut to be share investors. If you think the world has ended because the market's fallen by 50%, then maybe you should think again because it's going to happen to you again and again in an investing lifetime. You've got, you've, got to, you've got to flip things. You've got to think of a market crash not as the end of the world but an opportunity to be buying stocks cheaply. Mm. So that's the way I do it. I, I'm, I've, I have a philosophical approach to money, so you've probably picked that up. I mean, you could... You could shave a lot of money out of my bank account and I wouldn't really lose sleep over it because it's not going to change my life. But I I know some people fret if the stock market falls 2%. You know, they get upset about it. You've got to kill that. So how can you kill it? Well, by developing an understanding of financial history, you'll begin to understand that volatility is perfectly normal in the stock market. And if it still doesn't sell you on the idea, uh, perhaps tying yourself to the mask means buying index funds, broad-based ETFs, and not watching the market because you're going to be absolutely fine if you hold them long-term. Uh, and if you even think that's a worry, then perhaps go and buy real estate. So that's, <laughs> you know, that's behavioural finance. Um, I was talking before about the siren song of uh, of forecasters. Mm. Uh, Dan Gardner's book Future Babble is really good. If you, if, it's quite a good read. And if you get to the end of Future Babble and still listen to forecasters on TV, there's something wrong with you because he produces an extremely convincing argument. While well, it's all a waste of time, and I think for a good general overview of the market, uh, Howard Marks. The most important thing. I, I thought that had some really useful information in it. So that that's just how many? That's just five books. You know, I could sit here all day, but I won't. Mm. Now we'll put a link in the show notes to all of those books that you just mentioned, as, as well as Ulysses' contract, of course. Um, and once again, you can pick it up from any good bookstore, and every good bookstore uh, should stock it. Yeah, and Michael, we've covered a lot of ground today from the sirens and how we might be led astray as investors and how we can be our own worst enemy, some of your journey investing and learning about different companies and ideas and what financial independence means for you. But if you had to leave listeners with one lesson or piece of advice or idea after listening to today's episode, what would that be? People confuse what's important to become a good investor. They think it's an intellectual exercise. It can be if you want it to be, but it doesn't have to be. And I think the most important thing for a good investor is is certain personal traits. Uh, those traits of discipline, uh, those traits of consistency and patience. And I think if you're disciplined, consistent and patient and follow a certain rules, you can become a good investor. And by that, I mean disciplined, consistent and patient. What I mean is constantly saving something, constantly investing something and be patient to allow 
compounding of returns to deliver the return. I, I, I've talked a bit about going to Omaha and um, I've talked also about Joseph de la Vega's book, uh, Confusion of Deconfusion, de the first book I am aware of that was written on investing, 1688. Patience appears in his book. De la Vega says what's important to be a great investor is patience. I have many, many old books in my bookshelves going back, you know, 150 up to 200 years, that word patience appears again and again and again. And I had the good fortune of meeting Warren Buffett's daughter, Susie Buffett, on three occasions, once to actually speak to her. And in the small group I was in, someone asked her um, what two words best describe your father. And she didn't hesitate. She said integrity and patience. And I think the message I want to pass on to people is impatience is the enemy to be a good investor. Mm. Well, that's a wonderful way to end the discussion. I really appreciate, once again, you taking the time to join Kate and I in the RAS community listening to this or watching this. Um, you didn't have to be here today, as we've discussed, <laughs> but we do really, really appreciate your time. That's Lisa. okay. Thanks I'll, for coming. I'll to talk to you. Yeah. And Kate, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a Rask Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no-obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. 
Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.